Do you reckon? Do you reckon you could bing in a Scotch egg from the boundary through the keeper? It depends whether it was like one of the um, like densely packed uh, artisan scotched eggs from like uh, a nice like little bakery or that kind of number from like Gales. You have Gales in Bolton. It's like a posh posh Greggs. No, I reckon you could wang in a heavy one, like a um, like a picnic mini one that comes in a purse no tub. No chance. No chance. <laughs> Maybe the packet, though. This is good content. You should keep this rolling. And- Cut away for four. Carlos Rathwick. Remember the name. And my goodness, it's gone way down to Swansea. Off in style. I, was, I was sat in the cabinet room and I was like hosting me on me. Yeah. The big man, the fridge is open. He's flown like a gazelle. What can Chris Gale do? He goes long. Oh, you right. You've got a man beside you. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. All right, there. Welcome to the wrong one. We return with the energy of a David Milan who've just been told that he starts a little bit too slow. And by we, I mean myself, Bertie Moores, new Scottish convert, Max Parry. Yeah, how you doing? And dictionary <laughs> definition southerner, Ollie Gordon. Great to be back, Bertie. How you doing? I'm I'm very well. I mean, it's official vaccine approval day, and I'm settling in with a few cans of uh, San Miguel to to celebrate and. Uh, Oil the wheels of good cricket chat, shall we say? I'm. Uh, I think that's a good idea, Bertie. As, as we refer to uh, in our WhatsApp chat as, as podcast lubricant, I think it gets you appropriately hyped. I've gone for the um, the pint of Onken vanilla yogurt, which I'm, I'm chomping through. It's quite the, the filling product, actually. But, but we'll get through it, and certainly by the end of the uh, the podcast, it'll be gone. Yeah, yours is not uh, percent fat. Mine is four uh, percent, five percent alcohol. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's a bit like, you know how Coke Zero's got no sugar? You're like, oh, must be good for me. Mm. But hidden in it is, you know, the bad stuff. I've heard that you've, uh, on various BBC Two uh, watchdog health-related programmes, which which aren't really important for me losing weight at the uh, at the uh, spry weight of about 10 stone or whatever I am, uh, it, if they put on 0% fat, it just means they pump up the sugar. There you go. There you go. Well, I'm going to be on a high on tie for the next sort of 40 minutes so. Now, I'm hoping, boys, that we attack today with the confidence that Ian Chappell has when suggesting that switch hitting is unfair to bowlers and therefore should be banned. You're saying we should speak with sort of uh, ill-thought-out, irrational bollocks. Is that what you're saying? We should <laughs> we should come in with the gust of a, of a geriatric? I mean, that's a, that's a bit harsh to Great an to Australian grey. Uh, yeah, no, but glad to be back, Japs. Glad to be back. <laughs> It's more the more the essence of confidence than anything. But I mean, if we're talking about Ian Chappell, in his words, how can one side of the game, i.e. the bowlers, have to tell the umpire how they're going to bowl? And yet the batsman, he lines up as a right-hander. I'm a fielding captain. I place the field for the right-hander. And before the ball's been delivered, the batsman becomes a left-hander. I mean, in his words, that's fundamentally unfair rather than just a development of the batting game. This this but this debate he he it's like it's not two thousand and eight. This debate has been had. I remember when Kevin Peterson was switch hitting Scott Styrus into the stands wherever wherever England were playing, and this debate was rocking you know rocking on then. It it has since passed. I feel like we've we've you know the next thing he's going to be commenting on Brexit in twenty twenty eight in Chapel. Like the, the moment is gone. You know, we, we've had the we've had the argument. I, this is not me nailing my colours to the Brexit mask, by the way. I'm just saying that's how late he will be to the various debates. 
we've done this. It's we've done we've done the switch hit stuff. It's good. It's I've not, fun. I've not personally done it because it's not really actually the conversation that I was having at a age of eleven in the playground. I can imagine you in the playgrounds of Essex, sort of uh, oh, going yeah. over KP's yeah. uh, technique to Scott Starish. But but on on the point itself, I mean, it's just an evolution in batting and people. It's not as though you can play a switch hit to every shot. It's not as though they're suddenly cover driving left-handed if you're right-handed. Like it's just it's just one shot. And I'd be very yeah. surprised if it developed into like how tennis players have a forehand and a backhand that you can only bat properly if you can uh, if you can late cut with your right and your left hand. Yeah, it seems like I, I just think it's uh it's it's the comments of a of a man who's probably passed his his uh intellectual best, shall we say. Wow. Unrelated, but I've had an idea, and I hope the hundred uh, organizers are listening. But wouldn't it be good if the if the batsman said where they're going to hit the ball and how many runs they're going to score, then they get double that amount of runs if they fill it off. So if they say I'm going to hit the next shot over cover for four, the field is not allowed to change, and if they pull it off, it becomes eight runs. I mean that's an option, but I I really feel that you're far far ahead. And onside with virtually every fundamental change that you could make to the game of cricket. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wouldn't put that past uh, past a hundred come next summer. So we'll see, we'll see. I'll send them an email. Send them an email. I'm sure. I'm sure you've dropped into their into their spam <laughs> folder more than enough times. Yeah, I was like for a job but, there. I mean, knowing them, they might end up implementing it. Some of them, anyway. England are motoring along very nicely at the moment as they uh, as they jump up to the top-ranked T20 side in the world, as far as I'm aware, may be wrong. A 3-0 victory in the T20 series against South Africa thanks to a combo of some astute bowling performances, but in particular, David Milan. Is he really the best since Brad Manoli? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean... <laughs> I wrote a piece on on uh, Joe Root and how he should be in the, uh, the England side prior to this series, um, and sort of insinuated in it that you know Milan's fortune would would at some point come to an end. But I think at this point, I know it's only a couple of matches later, but at, at some point you've got to say, well, you know, maybe it's it's not the rub of the green that's going his way, but he's actually just you know a very a very good player. And I, you know, I understand that the rationale that maybe he doesn't he's not explosive in the way that that Josh Butler or, or Jason Roy is, but maybe then he's not, you know, it's, it's a bit unjustified that that tag that he's not as explosive because look at some of the shots that he's played on on the way to getting ninety nine not out the, the other day. So two match winning performances ultimately in the in the second game he hit fifty five and took England towards the end, got a little bit little bit of close for comfort and the only one with one ball to spare, but ultimately. It was pretty steady from him. And then in the third game, absolutely let loose with a 99 or 47. Potentially should have got a century if he realised that we were only one run from victory. Like you say, Ollie, he's, he, he doesn't come across as a sort of really explosive batsman, but he's such an interesting player in that he's an absolute juggernaut in the T20 Blast. He's never played to the in the IPL, but he's taken to internationals like a duck to water with an engine strapped on its back. I mean, he doesn't seem to particularly have any technical flaws in the T20 game. He he doesn't. I'll, I'll chime in on this one. He doesn't. I mean, we were discussing off air. He's quite. Um, he's not that aesthetically. And I know this this shouldn't matter, but of course, cricket is a game of aesthetics. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't 
aesthetically convinced, especially through the offside. He plays away from his body and then times the nuts off it. But you sort of think, like, I, I can't bowl for Toffee, but I sort of think, well, tweak it away from him, you know, challenge the outside edge, you'd nick him off. Like, obviously that never happens. But he... I, I wonder whether it's he, he isn't particularly compact and maybe that's why people are mm. a little bit reluctant to say that he's the real deal, real deal, even though the, the numbers obviously suggest that he is. If he played with the, you know, if he played compact like Johnny Bairstow did and scored the volume of runs that he did, then perhaps we wouldn't be uh, so reticent to question whether he's like the real McCoy. I mean, obviously he is. The numbers say he is. I think the other thing is, you know, cricket fans really enjoy either very traditional or very rogue. And he's sort of neither. Like, he's not Butler scooping the shit out of it, but nor is he like Ian Bell creaming cover drive. He's sort of, oh, it's not, oh, that's really cool. But nor is it, oh, that's so classical. It's somewhere in mm. between and no one can dive headfirst into that grey area. He's like a heavy metal violin, you know? <laughs> Just like He's, that. That's yes. that, that, that analogy was on the tip of my tongue. Yes, yes. The the impression I get with uh, with Milan before we come on to the actual, I think the main concern with him in the England lineup is that. I I don't know if it's if it's the way he bats or the way he. I don't think he's the warmest player when it comes to the fans warming to him in terms of how he reacts to them. But there seems to be such a sort of up yours attitude to his batting that there's all this conversation about should Milan be in the side even though we know he's a good player because we don't know if he'll work entirely well but then he goes out and gets just back-to-back scores which just do completely blow those worries out of the water and concerns that it he won't fit in and gives people little choice but select him yeah I agree and I think the, there was a, a slight um you know, fear that he was too one-dimensional in starting slowly and then pushing on. And if the game were to take a different um, slant, then how would he adapt to that? But I mean, that argument was completely blown out of the out of the water as Yaz from from Wisdom found out uh, after that last test when he proved he could play in, it in a different way and, and a different way to many of the options that England have as well. And I think he really has. I'd be amazed if he hasn't nailed down his his starting spot for for that World Cup next year now. And I think the only probably person in that top order who's, who's probably fearing for their place more than any other is, is Jason Roy now, I'd, I'd, I'd expect. I think there's probably rationale for the the thought that Bairstow may open and maybe Root comes back in or Tom Banton if you're going to go a little, little bit left through, left field, sorry. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd be amazed if Milan hasn't now nailed down that spot. I don't think that the, uh, the sort of concerns about Milan are completely unfounded like it it comes down to ultimately a lot of it is this this idea of whether he starts too slowly and in the same way that Chris Gale would Chris Gale would often start very slowly but then just go like the absolute clappers and go insane and that was a risk that you would have if you have Chris Gale in your side now I'm not immediately equating the two of them Milan's not had anywhere near the same long-term success at the T20 level, uh, international T20 level, the top level. But if you are going into a tournament scenario in the format in which it is most naturally unpredictable in terms of what scores players are going to get because you have to take risks, it's not a completely unfounded concern. If if England are in a semi-final or a final and Milan were to get 14 off 13, 
then that does pose an issue. And I'm sure there's all sorts of analysis that you could do on it. But ultimately, he's doing more than enough now to dispel those concerns and make it worthwhile to ultimately play him for me. Bertie, let me let me throw some numbers at that concern that you've just that you just levied, right? Because I think it is a legitimate concern because you you know as you say he plays in a way that perhaps is actually sort of five years in the past. The idea of you know you have ten balls and then you go. He is now in the top ten, I think, all time T twenty run scorers for England in, in in international T twenties, as we've uh, I assume discussed before. Well, no, I mean he's only just got in, but um. He averages over 50, but at a strike rate of 149, right? Like, I, I take the point that he might start slowly. And then if, you, if you're in a run chase and you lose quick wickets, you're in the mire. But T20 is about calculated risk. And the numbers have, have, have borne out that yeah. once he gets through the first 10 balls or, or however long, he goes like an absolute train. So, you know, I, I'd also take the point, I'd like to pick up, Ollie, on on Joe Root, if he comes in for um, Jason Roy and you bump Bairstow up the order, I then think you do have a problem because mm. you would think Root would play in quite a similar style to Milan. And if they were both out there at the same time and you were chasing 200 in the semi-final, you might find that you're running into problems because you're getting too far behind the rate. And then if you lose a couple of wickets, you're screwed. But... The argument, the argument that Milan starts too slowly and therefore is a problem, I just don't think is borne out by the numbers. Is the only I bloke in that top ten that averages uh, that scores at uh, 149 runs per hundred balls? I think it's very fair in that you. I think I think the conversation comes to do with the distribution of the scores. That yet when he does get going, he gets going. But it's the risk. It might be the naught point. It might be the 30 percent chance risk that he doesn't get going. But ultimately. His performance have been so, so strong that I think that's completely cast that aside. Now, it's unusual with England that there's so many good batsmen. You compare the lineup that South Africa had, maybe there's three solid batsmen, to England where there's at least six. Johnny Bairstow, another man, he was shuffled back into the order, but as a middle-order batsman, Butler opening the batting with the, with the admittedly very flimsy Jason Roy. But Bairstow, again, a player who he... Sort of, he so often comes back with an answer, and in this case, launching eighty six off that forty uh, off forty six in that first match, there was nothing that South Africa threw at him that he couldn't deal with, and he absolutely launched everything. I mean, for him, he the questions I think for England have been what are they doing at the top of the order that because they have so many options with the openers, but then if you are to take one out, where do you put one? And he seems to have really emphatically answered the question that he can go back in the middle order and in turn that provides the answer to the other question of who do you open yeah i think he's probably a little bit victim of his own of his you know red ball fallibility and that we get this impression or you know perception in our minds that he's not as good as he maybe is but if you just look in isolation that his white ball record he just is an outstanding player and, and I don't think putting him to four is necessarily the reason that he got runs the other day. He has proved time and time again that wherever he bats in that top six, he has the potential to be destructive. Like Max said earlier, 2020 is about calculated risk and if you've got a player that has the potential to be as destructive as he can be, then he's got to be in your side on the same in the same vein as, as Butler's not going to come you know, good every time and, and Milan even is not going to come in good every time to have someone like 
Bairstow has the ability to be as destructive as, as he is. You know, 360 really all around the ground. His straight hitting is is as sublime as anyone in that, that England uh, 2020 side, I'd suggest. You know, he, he's got to be a pick, I'd suggest. There's so many questions that sort of go on with, with the England batting order because it, it is unusual having, I think we've been saying in a few, uh, I think in the previous series at the end of the summer, that we've we've not seen proper full strength England in the uh, in the one day formats in a while. But the starting eleven when they have their full strength side together, Archer, Stokes, Butler, everyone together, it's it it really is a frightening prospect, and particularly with the batsmen. The questions ultimately boil down to which of these good players do we put in, rather than which areas are we weak in, and that's where a lot of the questions have been. But just, I'd like to touch quickly on the bowlers because England do have a very good bowling attack as well. I mean, Joffre Archer was the IPL player. He was the the MVP of the IPL that's just gone. But I think the a couple of the questions that have remained with the bowling lineup going into the uh, T20 World Cup next year remain, do England need two spinners? And who takes the role that Tom Curran currently has? Is it Tom Curran or is it someone else? Do you think those questions have been answered? No. And I don't understand why they persisted with um, the same side all three games, to be honest with you. I can I can see it from the, the batting perspective, maybe, because there's arguably less competition without uh, without Root and Banton being in that squad. But, it, you know, it's... it's I struggle to fathom why they haven't given Root a go at uh, sort of Root, uh, Wood a go in that in that T20 side, just to try something a little bit different. Even if it's just well, either because Archer's, it, you know, if he gets injured, then you haven't got that pace element, and you haven't tried and tested Wood. But I don't think Tom Curran uh, is the answer as a as a seamer. If Satch were here, he'd be he'd be moaning about Chris Jordan, but I think he's, um, you know, he, over the course of time, he's he's probably proved himself and cemented his place in the side. But I am a bit surprised that they haven't tinkered at all with their bowling lineup in in an effort to experiment. One assumes that's because they're happy with the line, that bowling lineup that they had and, and the fact that Ali maybe was out of form. I mean, wasn't, um, wasn't performing well, so they decided to persist with it. But you'd think surely in the, what, 15 games they have left now between now and the World Cup, they'd, they'd give some alternative options a go, if nothing else, just to, to see if there there is anything else out there. The elephant in the room is unquestionably... The elephant in the room is definitely mowing. I mean, you know, the tournament, the the World Cup's going to be played in India. You're going to want to play two spinners. I thought, I mean, ironically, the strength of Curran and the rest of the seam attack other than Archer is the way they can take the pace off the ball. But I think not giving mowing a go in a series that we'd already won, that England had already won, sorry, um, perhaps is ill-advised. That said... And, and this is with the benefit of hindsight. Obviously, the wicket they played on at Newlands was an absolute... I mean, it was the M11. It was an absolute road. And Moe Ali is, is, you know, is a bowler who is very uh, confidence-dependent. If he'd been brought in for the final game and had gone around the park, which he definitely could have done, um, you're then back to square one with respect to people questioning his confidence and whether he's got the mental fortitude uh, to be relied upon in a pressure situation. But for me, I think Curran's the one who's looking over, Tom Curran, that is, is the one who's looking over his shoulder, just simply as well, because his younger brother just looks a much more complete version of himself. What what an IPL, you know, trampoline effect he's had, by the way. I think yeah. you would not have said two months ago that he was a nailed-on T20 player and 
with bat and ball basically being a one-man team for for csk he's just you know catapulted himself into to a place in that england side and god i, I you know what i love sam curran and i'm not embarrassed or afraid to say he's my guilty pleasure weird hair though <laughs> i don't all of them all are taking you gotta take the good with the bad i yeah, argue yeah, maybe maybe Speaking actually on the subject quickly, Bertie. Sorry, I know that we're going off we're going off piece here, but on the subject of weird hair, Rassi van der Dusen, right? During the test series, I don't know if you remember earlier earlier in the year, feels like a lifetime ago now. We were talking, or specifically, I was talking about Rassi van der Dusen's tooth to gum ratio, and I felt actually retrospectively, I felt quite bad. Well, I felt quite bad for Rassi because really, you know, he's a professional cricketer. His his dental hygiene is frankly irrelevant. However. Upon removal of his helmet, right, <laughs> after after the completion of his magnificent swashbuckling innings, I couldn't help but notice he's he's rocking a serious island upon the crown of his head, which really blew me away. I thought he was like 21. He, you take his helmet off and he looks 36. Rasidi van der Dusen. Rasidi van der Dusen. <laughs> RV double D, as I'm going to refer to him. But um, yeah, what, what do we think? Because And the irony is cricket cricketers have a long fabled history with with various hair replacement brands uh, do we think he'll emerge on south african telly you know accompanied by mark nicholas and darren goff chatting about you know follicles or whatever do we see it <laughs> i don't think i have a reply to that it's a good observation uh, time will tell i'd yes. love to see a uh, a super sport hair returning cream strategic timeout <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. advanced hair studios. Uh, Only when he's yeah, at the crease. Yeah, yeah. If I was in the marketing department, I'd be ringing up Cricket South Africa. I know that much. Um, there must be a link between helmets and, and re- receding, recession. Yeah. The, the, the must volume a, of hair. It's a, it must be a lesser researched area. You know, we, we're <laughs> we're obviously very focused on safety as we should, but but <laughs> cricket is about looking good as much as it is about playing is well. And you know, one, upon removing of the helmet, if you're if you're losing your, mm-hmm. your, and I your think fur. as well for, for a batter, their hair's not actually on view because they go straight from helmet into cap. cap. Uh-huh. So unless you say that they only interview in helmet, yeah, that would be weird. Or you just wear That'd it for the rest of your life. The <laughs> 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 uh, that was just sorry, uh, Bert. <laughs> That was thoroughly informative. On the spinners, uh, I'd slightly uh, suggest that it was interesting in in uh, in the series how well George Lynn did with the ball. Generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, as the finger spinning option when uh, when Moeen was sat on the side, I think yeah, I, I, it, it's difficult. It, I think if you're going to take anyone out, it would be Curran. If you were going to bring in Moeen, uh, but really if England are going to go down this route of four seamers, and if it's going to be Curran, then you just sort of hope to see a little bit more from him because even if Moeen's sort of out of form and ultimately not play much cricket in uh, in the past in the past year or so, then you'd really hope that Curran's confidently in that spot and it sort of removes the debate. I suppose the other question as well is if Curran, you know, is having a stinker and they want to replace him, but they don't want a spinner. And they don't want with someone with express pace. If they do want someone who's going to bowl, you know, clever cutters, etc. Who's next in line on that front? Darren Stevens. Correct. <laughs> pace off. Dibble double. Darren Stevens. <laughs> An option. Dibble double Darren. 
Dibble double, name. dibble double down. That's his name, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still believe no, it's that a... we come back to our old local Boltonian friend, Matt Parkinson, but that's an argument for another day. Oh yeah, I don't think he bothers dibbles either. That is, that is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's next, I mean, I'm sure you probably want to close this segment, Bertie. But that is um, very strange that they haven't taken. Well, <laughs> he's been, he's loved his career as a water carrier for the last 18 months, but they decided now that after him getting absolutely no opportunities whatsoever that, that he's not the one to be uh, to continued with despite the fact that our second choice spinner um, is clearly having an existential crisis and, and doesn't really want to be near a cricket field interesting fact he bowls slower than anyone else on the Crickviz database ever that is a good fact that is a good yeah. fact about 47 miles an hour which is good to see because it makes me think that my pace could t- keep up with the top level is Darren Stevens not on the Crickviz? <laughs> England weren't the only side involved uh, in the T20 series. South Africa were also there. Uh, they didn't particularly necessarily turn up. They were, were pretty weak, is what I've got down in my notes. And that Quentin de Kock, generally speaking, apart from the odd appearance from Faf du Plessis and Razzy van Dusen, has to do a lot of carrying. And if he gets out, in my words, they will lose... of the time if he gets out before he gets going. I think it's a very fair comment. He strikes me as, obviously, he's an immensely talented player, pretty decent wicketkeeper. He strikes me as, though, from a captaincy perspective, he looks like a teenager who's been told he can't have the latest Xbox. You know what I mean? He's got a very sullen face all the time. And also, because he's quite youthful, he really does (laughs) capture that. He's got a a lot of bum fluff going on. Um, That's no, no different to Root, though. Well, Root, yeah, but Root's, just yeah, been but Root's told got that like cheeky impish grin of someone. Well, he doesn't look like he needs an Xbox. You know what I mean? He's happy just chasing a stick or something. Whereas Quinton's like, I sit inside, I play Xbox. And, and now now the, the next generation machines come out and he's been told he can't have it. And so that's what it is. That's the, t- the tools he's got. Actually, it's quite a good metaphor. The tools he has with South Africa at the moment are like a PS3 in the era of the PS5. You know, England is the PS5 and he doesn't have all those component parts. But he's still I got the sort of last original Red Dead in a sort of a couple of players. Like he's got a couple of games to play with, but generally speaking, the rest of them just don't have to the test of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got Modern Warfare 2. He's enjoying himself, which by the way, right, and I said before we, we recorded, I've got some, some interesting hot takes. Do we think the, I've got to get this right, the uh, Six Gun Grill Newlands Ground, right, which by the way, ridiculous name. Do we think that the... Um, the redevelopment that, d- that they're doing reminds us of High Rise from Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Oh, I think it just looks like a building site, mate. No, it does. No, but no, right. I, I think we should share this but on I think all buildings because I think, I think like our that. listenership will, will 100% back me up here. We're the looking at our demographics. Sort of... It's definitely this target age group. Well, I need to Google both things, I think. I, I, I have Googled both things for your, for your pleasure, right? It's the, the derelict sort of concrete structure covered in the green matting with a bit of holes and then the cranes either side. It screams high-rise Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. That's all I'm saying, ladies and gents. You've got to check it out. It's a, it's a true fact. Should that be like a kill streak? It's the option is uh, Joss Butler or Rassi van der Dusen raining white balls above from above? Well, yeah. I mean, I reckon Joff... 
perhaps Joff feels at home at Newton's, although he didn't play particularly well, but perhaps he feels at home because it reminds him of his sort of VR experience when he's, you know, playing yeah. Call of Duty Maybe two at home. 14-year-olds. Yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. I just love... I know I, I digress like well I suppose I don't digress you direct, digress, yeah, digress I'm just following on <laughs> I love that he, Joffre just has no shame whatsoever that he's still playing like Fortnite or whatever he plays you know I, I'd love to see Morgan jump on that hype yeah someone with a bit more um, but presumably you know, Sorry, presumably that's well. That's presumably because so many facets of his life are complete that he doesn't need <laughs> to care about what anyone thinks about him playing childish games because he's an international cricketing superstar, a very handsome one at that. He probably does exceptionally well in social situations. He has <laughs> loads of money. Like, yeah, of course he doesn't care that you tell <laughs> him he plays Fortnite. He's got yeah. everything we yearn for. Yeah. So away from the, uh, shall I say? Uh, pit stops away from the actual conversation that we were having. South Africa, they really do look, as it stands, if you look at the quality in their side, at least a couple of years away from back being a, a top quality side in a lot of formats. But if we're focusing on T20, a couple of years away from some quality, aren't they, Ollie? But as you've said, there's so much going off the field in South Africa that in a way it's uh, no surprise. Yeah, I mean, it almost beggars belief how much... Um of a pantomime it is off the field in, in South Africa with Cricket South Africa. If you haven't seen Jared Kimber's, uh, what he labeled a video essay on, on what happened, what has happened in the last uh, four years now with the, uh, with the board and everything, then, then I highly recommend you do so because it's been in great detail, sort of the turmoil, turmoil that's gone on at the top level. And I, and I do, and it is a little bit of a cliche, but I really do think that on the field performances, reflects strong governance you know there's uh, there's stability there's um transparency in terms of, of selection and, and continuity all those as i say cliche phrases but when you've got a board who um well in fact they've got a new interim board who've, who've just hopped on to to take over the reins the side looks equally as as fallible as as the the higher powers do um you know we could spend probably a whole po- podcast looking at why things have gone gone wrong over there and how they've gone wrong. But as I say, I do suggest you look at that, the, the, the Jared Kimber podcast. I think five journalists in the, in last year were had their CSA um, accreditation revoked basically for slagging off the board, which I think says it all. If you, you know, it turns into a slight dictatorship, if, if that's the way you're going to run things. And as I say, that's reflected on the field in, in the turmoil, turmoil that they're in. But that said, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. It takes a couple of, you know, six months to, to a year of, of stability for things to start to rise again. And it only takes a couple of players like uh, Rassi van der Dusen, who excelled in the World Cup a couple of years ago and has, has gone on to rubber stamp his place in that side across all three formats for the size to to slowly start start picking up again. But, you know, there is that fear that at the minute there's a number of players who, who don't quite look up to it. You know, look at Simpala who got pumped the other day and Gidi as, as you know, impressive as he can be, looked a bit off the ball as well. I, 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 would, I would add a note of course I completely agree with what you're saying Ollie I mean they do look well off the pace I would add though South Africa were definitely in the second uh, T20 and maybe even in the first I can't actually remember now uh, it escapes me but definitely in the second South Africa were bossing the game and they were one horror over from Hendricks from from I mean and that's what gifted England the, the chase England needed 50 odd from 20 balls and then needed 20 from 18 or so or 23 from 18 so and England are you know now the best T20 side in the world 
So, yeah, you know, South Africa are off the pace. There is no doubt. They, they won't be a contender, you wouldn't have thought, in the World Cup. But it actually very easily could have been 2-1 this series. It could, they could have won the series had a couple of overs gone in I a different don't. fashion. Granted, the last, the last T20 was an absolute uh, demolition job by England. Um, but I think that really speaks to the nature of T20 and actually how fine the margins are. You know, 3-0, it doesn't flatter England, and especially given the, the nature of the final victory in the third T20, uh, it's very difficult to say 3-0 flatters England. But actually, the margins were quite small. Hendricks doesn't bowl that over, and then South Africa win that second T20. I sort of disagree in that it's on the basis that you look at the England side and and often, I know it's a little bit of a deterministic statement, but generally speaking, when England have that much quality in the side, you expect a moment like that to happen in the game. You don't expect Reese Hendricks to bowl five wides randomly, but mm. I'd, I'd actually suggest that England won, did win the series very comfortably. The final game, okay, Van der Dusen, let's rip, but clearly England done very well in the first half of that innings with their bowling, and then England win with 14 balls to spare, the second game, yeah, it's a little bit tighter, but England was still on track for the chase. And uh, not, and not only before Hendricks. I, I take your point that you know you could argue Hendricks's uh, twenty-eight run over was as a resu- was a result of England capitalising upon some poor bowling, and that I concede that. But the five wides, there were. I think he bowled another. I think he bowled another wide in the over as well, or a, a no ball that was dispatched for a free hit. England were England were toast up until that point. And that was in the 17th over. So I think we should be hesitant to say South Africa are light years behind England. They're definitely a significant way behind. But I think it, a game of T20 cricket can be, as we saw with Milan last night and, and, and Joss Butler, can be grabbed by an individual or two. Mm. I equally can be thrown away by an individual or two. And I think England have still got players that, that are capable of a serious gaff. You know, if Moeen Ali gets picked in India, he could go for some. So could Adil Rashid. So could a number of England's bowlers. So I, think that- I don't think the chasm is necessarily what we think it is. Yeah, and I think that's partly, I think we're talking generally, if you were to like repeat games in like a, in a simulation setting, that's what I'm more on about. Obviously in T20, mm. things can go either way, but I think it's more that with England, you do have the faith that the ship will be righted. And that's yeah. been the case with their one-day format for the past four years. One final thing on South Africa. I was very impressed with uh, debutant uh, George Lind. He bowled out his allocation in all three games. He only took two wickets across three games, but went at only six and over. I thought it was, I thought it was a very, very solid debut series. Yeah, a little bit of something um, different. I don't think... You know, he doesn't absolutely rip it. And we're probably in the age now of, of leggies where they're, you know, they're turning it a, a, a pitch length. So to have something a little bit different probably looked like he bowled about the pace of Matt Parkinson as well. So uh, not a lot of, of, of pace to work with and, and gave him the longer side of the, the boundary. So he had the protection that, that he needed. And um, yeah, listen, like I don't think he's a, he's a world beater. And it's probably... Um, more a factor of the fact that he'd never, you know, it's 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 his first foray into T Twenty, and no one really knew what to do with him. I, I, I'm hesitant to say that he's, you know, the answer to to South Africa's spin problems since to, to here left. But um, you know, it's a, it's a good start. Positives. And sorry, 
some positives for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, I completely agree. It's, it's a positive to take from this series, but I think you've got to be, um, you know, you can't get too ahead of yourself. I think you've got to be realistic and and think what, you know, what you might do going forward. But, you know, on the other hand, the fact that the, the World Cup is in India with a, a slow, turgid pitches might might help them even more and even less pace to work with. So, yeah, a positive for sure, but, you know, still got to be realistic about, you know, the state of him going forward. Okay, we will return shortly after this. Hello, you, Bertie here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. We put in a lot of work into the show, so any minute that you listen, we're supremely grateful. I just wanted to chime in to point you towards the subscribe and the follow buttons on iTunes and Spotify. If you tap on those, then we'll drop into your app every single week with new episodes, and we would love to have you on board to join us more regularly. If you love the show, then also give it a share on social media, and you can tag and follow us at at WrongandCricket on Twitter. Cheers. So welcome back to the Rongan, uh, a topical DRS this week, which we'll get straight into. Let's see what we make of this. What with England's analyst communicating to the field with symbols and signals, should in-game analysts be banned for the good of the game? So off the back of England using uh, a signalling system through to the on-field players with uh, numbers and letters that sort of perplexed a few people at the uh, at the weekend. The question that we've got after we got into a conversation with uh, with another cricket podcast that's called The Cricket Podcast, if you want to go check those guys out on Twitter, we're asking, should in-game analysts be banned for the good of the game? Ollie? Um, I don't feel that there is a need for them to be banned on an ethical basis that there is some sort of advantage uh, the fielding team is getting that the batting side don't have. What I do think is that I struggle to see the point of them in that, you know, that I suppose they're there to offer extra insight to a captain in maybe what the pitch is doing or, or what batsmen are doing, which is out of the ordinary. But I struggle to see what value someone sitting behind the laptop could give a captain that, that they wouldn't necessarily have already. Similarly, if an analyst is noting that, you know, a pitch is maybe turning more off uh, more than, than they expected or there's more bounce or carry, in a T20 that and and one day and, and even test match, you're still relying on your players who are you know have got the best matchups for for that batsman or who are bowling the best in that game. The analyst for England could have you know waxed lyrical with his little letters and numbers about how good the carry, for instance, was for Joffre Archer. But if Joffre Archer keeps bowling slot deliveries, they're getting dispatched over um, the I don't know Bunnings Warehouse Pavilion or whatever you said it was called. You know, you're you're not going to bowl him. So I, I struggled to sort of see what what relevance or what you know intel he could provide that is far superior to that which which Morgan or any international captain would already have. Yeah, whether whether or not they're actually useful is is another question. But I think a lot of the suggestions that it's it's not right is a little bit like in other sports like tennis, where the where the player is just supposed to be there in the moment and the coach can't communicate from the sidelines. I think the question that if they if they do make a difference, it's is there a lack of fairness between teams in that there's teams that have potentially different amounts of wealth. Now it might not be the case at the top level of international cricket, but some sides may have monetary access to better analysts. Is it is it fair that they have that advantage and others don't? And in the turn, access to like double just paper the- which shows the letters and the numbers more clearly as well. Yeah, that's true. You might not be able to afford a uh, a printer 
or vegetator exactly. yeah. sort of Jeez, uh, you can afford to buy a1 sheets rather than a4 that's mm. the big question but also i think the question comes down to does it reduce the actual impact of player instinct and player decisions now we're currently operating in a world where you can have in-game analysis but in the short form of the game does it reduce the actual impact which a player's decision makes and does that does that make the game worse i think is the is the sort of purest argument against them I, I'm going to answer your question, Bertie, by, by not answering it specifically. Um, I, I, I think the reason why intuitively people have got a problem with this and why I intuitively have a problem with it is because in cricket, unlike most other team sports, there is a culture of... The, the, the culture or the predominant culture is of the captain sort of being the, the source of tactical a response and decision-making, unlike any other sport. You know, in football or rugby, the, the coach carries the can in a far more obvious way and is responsible for tactical innovation and decision-making. In cricket, we, we don't do it like that. And the captain is is held on this pedestal and has this responsibility that the coaching staff simply don't have. So I think it, it's, it seems like a sort of insidious encroachment upon that. Um, that is at odds with that culture. I think that's why people have got a problem with it. I sort of agree with Ollie in that I don't think it matters because I don't think it can work, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of borne out in, you know, when when the England coaching staff were showing the 4E or 4C or whatever the bizarre code was, they were getting absolutely pumped immediately afterwards, <laughs> which was particularly amusing. Um, I mean, I picking up his clipboard, just turning one page over from yeah. C to B and then plugging it back down. Yeah, yeah. It, did look, it did look moronic, to be honest. It looked stupid. Um, so, aesthetics. I... I aesthetics. Aesthet- yeah, cricket is aesthetics. Cricket is art. Um, I, yeah, I, I have a problem with it. I, I think that's... I, I think that would be my reason as to why it seems to there seems to be a culture clash there and it's, it's, it's muddying the waters of what the the captain's role is, the purity of the captain's role. Are you saying it should be banned then or not? I, it makes you uncom- it makes, because I don't think it works, I don't think we'll need to ban it because I don't yeah. think it will, yeah. I don't think it will run. But if it was, I mean, hypothetically, you presume data an- analysis of sport will only become more in depth and more uh, effective. If it was to become really an integral part of a captain's arsenal, then I would have a bit more of a problem with it because I think, it, as I say, it clashes with how we understand a cricket captain to operate. It could get I think, uh, maybe mind readers or something of that ilk on the bow <laughs> of the balcony to to you know look into Rasidi van der Dusen's head and see what he doesn't want to face. Sure. I'd ban that. I would ban that actually. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah, bet. yeah, for sure. Just you know, sure. spitballing again the hundred if you if you're listening. <laughs> So apparently, you're saying you each team should have a soothsayer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> strategic timeout for them to go and sort of study yeah. opposition batsmen. Yeah, I think it's less about whether there's random signals going onto the field, and more about whether teams should be able to have an analyst with them doing stuff in game. Because Ollie, like you've said, there's a, there's a twelfth man coming on with drinks, and in the batting side, there are players coming in and out throughout the innings when players get out and could potentially be getting information the, the question would really come down to if it, if it were to make any difference how would you sort of practically implement it because obviously in, in tennis it might be more straightforward in that you just stop a coach from giving them instructions ultimately but in cricket it would be slightly more complicated to do that 
obviously you'd have to determine whether it really makes a noticeable difference in the first place, but you'd have to sort of, as with a lot of things in cricket, do it off the basis of uh, goodwill and and staying along with the code. But I slightly think that it may or may not make a difference to teams and it may or may not be unfair or fair given that we don't know how much of a difference it makes and also that most teams may be able to take advantage of this and in many ways you could also argue that it's no different to having a good coach and that this analyst although not a player is is part of the team and the coaching setup but my instinct would be that the horse is slightly already bolted and it's unlikely to be something which I don't think there'll be really much done with it but that's just uh, that's just instinct and that's that's not analytical or statistical. I bet Ian Ian Chappell definitely hates it. Unquestionably hates it. <laughs> oh mate, oh love, fucking what what do numbers mean? You know, that's what he's saying. <laughs> that's very good. That very Thank good. you. I mean he doesn't sound he definitely doesn't sound no, like that. No, but... that's a good sort of like generic like squeaky. Ah oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh give us a frothy, mate. Oh yeah. Leadership group. Yeah, whatever. Whatever you like. Anyway, so uh, so I think generally speaking, uh, we're a combination of uh, horses already bolted, and it doesn't. No one's going to do anything about it, and uh, you guys don't think it even matters in the first place. So uh, doesn't matter, mate. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Ultimately, it's about hitting those wickets and hitting those boundaries. And if you can't do that, you'll lose the game, and that's analysis. <laughs> anyway, that seems a uh, suitable uh, point for us to end. Thank you very much uh, for listening to The Wrong and Today. If you want to get in contact with us, just email me, bertiemores at gmail.com. That is my personal email address, so uh, so uh, you're welcome. I'm uh, I'm here all week. You can always contact me, and also Damn get it. in contact with us on, uh, on Twitter, uh, which is at wrong and cricket say goodbye ollie goodbye it's been a, it's been a pleasure all through his yogurt pot and say goodbye max love you bye love you bye and love you too goodbye <laughs>